Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 155. And if you are listening to this and you're wondering who could buy my business and or if you're listening to this and you want to buy a business, it's absolutely an episode to, for you because Mike Wickham is on the show and Mike is a corporate refugee. He spent a few decades in corporate America turning around big divisions of companies like Verizon and it has a ton of knowledge on how to grow and build teams and in sales. And after decades of experience, he said, you know what? I'm, I'm over this because he was going from the happy, really positive person and he was getting the cynicism and he had what Michael Gerber talks about as the entrepreneurial seizure and he said, today is the day that I'm going to start working for myself. So he started his consulting company where then he was helping companies grow and uh, grow their, their sales and a lot of their operations until one of his clients was in dire straits and it was a plumbing business. So he took out an SBA loan, more, you know, literally collateralized everything and purchased this dying business to grow it from four employees up to 24 and from a struggling million dollars into multi-million dollars in revenue to then finally exit at year five exactly like he wanted to. So it's a jam-packed story after we go through his corporate background into you know, literally step by step on how he bought the business, how he grew it and turned it around, and then how he sold it, and then how he ended up into a life after business, and now what he's doing now that he's unretired after a few months of the quote unquote retirement. So great story for anybody that wants to understand what it would be like to pre-plan and have a plan to sell their business and the things that Mike did once he bought the company, or if you're even looking to buy a company, Mike has some great advice about some of the things that he did and why he actually valued the business. So awesome story for anybody that's in the world of buying and selling businesses, which is everybody that's listening to this. So, and if there's one request that I have is please go into iTunes, give me a rating. And it's the only reason I'm able to get more and more guests on the show that I really enjoy. And if you enjoy the episode, share it with people or shoot me a LinkedIn or an email about someone or a topic that you want me to interview. Without further ado, here's my episode with Mike Wickham. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by GEXP Collaborative. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the buyer of your choice at the price you want. Good morning, Mike. How you doing? Doing very well. Thank you, Ryan. So I'm pumped to have you on the show. You and I met almost close to a year ago and I uh, heard your story and we were just chatting right before we got on the show about how you were not uh, as stupid as I was to start a business because you got into it in a crazy different way. And I'm excited to have you on the show to tell the story because going from corporate America to you know, a small business owner and then out of it again. But for the listeners who have not heard your story, let's let's start back, Mike, like, you know, where where'd you start your career and then how'd you end up in uh, corporate America? Well, you know, it wasn't really by choice. It was kind of expected uh, of me. I was a first-generation college graduate. No branch on my family tree had ever gone to college, and that was just kind of expected of me. And um, so when I came out of uh, college in the late 80s, uh, early 90s, I really had 
little direction other than, wow, I have this college degree. What should I do with it? And I'm, I'm happy to report it was the love of a good woman that set me on my path to success, which behind every good man is uh, an even greater woman. I would. She set me. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You better because she's listening. Yeah, she's listening, right? <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, very fortunate enough to fall into the wireless industry when there was about 5 million cell phones in this country. And my first job out of college uh, just got by chance. Uh, they came on campus and interviewed, was in the wireless business, and it was for customer service, an excellent place to cut your teeth on business and business in America. And, you know, my, my whole career has been a series of launching points that, that really started in, in the wireless business. That was a, a, a business, if anybody remembers, uh, that was really the wild, wild west. We, we came into to work uh, every Monday and basically reinvented our business every Monday. <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> exactly. What, what, what worked last week? Okay, let's keep that. What were the 10 things that really did not work? Okay, we're not going to do those anymore. Let's try this. And it really conditioned me to the environment of, of hyper change. Which, so I was just going to say, like, what would that be like, Mike? I mean, it, like, I couldn't imagine doing customer service for a new I mean, I couldn't, yeah, like what wireless was like back then and trying to like make sure that people were happy when now relying on this kind of technology that, that alone, not only hyper growth, but like hyper customer service. <laughs> oh, it was amazing. We, uh, we were down in Bloomington uh, and we handled, there were five of us. I only did this job for, for eight months, but there were five of us and we handled every wireless customer in five states. And you just <laughs> didn't go to the store and get educated or know what's going on. You know, it, hey, my my kid bought me this five thousand dollars cell phone. How do I use it? <laughs> is that the car one, <laughs> like, like yeah. Joking? There's no dial tone. What do I do? <laughs> I, I don't know what to do. You know, and if, if if you wanted to get a hold of somebody who was traveling, you couldn't just dial their number. It only searched for them where their number was based. So if they were driving from here to Madison, you had to know which towers they were probably at, and you had to dial a special oh, number <laughs> to get into. You know the uh, oh, uh, Chippewa Falls towers, and hopefully they were there. So it was, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. I was on the on the team that launched voicemail for the first time uh, during that position, uh, which was interesting in in and, of, in and of itself. So it, it really prepared me for for hyper change because I, I quickly moved into sales, uh, moved down to Orlando with my wife, got a job down there, and moved into sales, and very quickly realized that. As a hyper-competitive person, I played uh, four sports in high school and two in college, that sales was both the best thing that ever happened to me and the worst thing that ever happened to me. Because if I was number three on the team, I would work as long and hard as I could to be number one. And then I had to be number one in the region and then in the country. And by the age of 24, I had an ulcer. No kidding. That was not fun. Was that that just from pure stress or what was it? It was from 16-hour days, seven days a week for the first two years I was out of college, three hours, three years out of college. So again, it was the best and the worst of it and found my calling in working for a company that wanted to develop a wireless business. Uh, they were a car dealership. They wanted to sell cell phones along with their cars. It was a novel concept and, and took off and uh, all over the country. You buy a car, you get a cell phone. So I built the sales force that... Uh, that did that and found my calling in developing uh, people and teams. Uh, it was the first time that I'd ever built anything in, in business. I was 24 years old. I had no idea what I was doing other than 
I'm a good salesperson, so let's make these people good salespeople. And then I started seeing the lights go on in people and the, the changes in their life that it can make when they are successful in something, mm-hmm. uh, when they actually take that turn and, oh my gosh, I'm excited about what I do and I see a future in it. And that whole time period in, in my 20s, as I worked my way up through uh, GTE, which was the phone company predecessor to Verizon, uh, that's one of the companies that made up Verizon ultimately in 2000, I believe, is when the transition happened. You got to tell um, your story about Verizon, where you, where you were, when the, because weren't you part of the whole naming thing? Yes. You know, I only have two claims to fame. Uh, number one, <laughs> that, I, that I actually, I met the guy that invented the at symbol symbol in email. No shit. He was at a, con- <laughs> was at a conference. He was long retired. He had, he had worked for GTE Labs, I believe, back in the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> and and he told us yeah, and he told the story of how they came up with the app symbol. It, it was really amazing. Well, he hit, was, he drawing, was he drawing an A and got bumped from behind or something? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, you know, they were kicking around different uh, ways to do it, and they were going to spell out at with uh, parentheses around it. And but uh, but he he was a really neat neat guy. Uh, but my second one was that I was on the company wide conference call with uh, all the directors and VPs when they announced what the new name of the company would be. And it was built up for days. We're going to find out. They just spent, you know, X million dollars. This is the new company and it's going to be the premier wireless company. And they said the word Verizon and the laughter in our conference room overwhelmed the oh room. Oh my gosh, it's so funny. Could not believe. I mean, the jokes were flying left and right within minutes. You know, Vermin, Horizon, you know, there's a rat in your future, uh, all types of just funny things. And, you know, now it's a top 10 brand in the world. Right. Uh, Crazy. So it was really, really interesting. The, um, so, yeah, GTE was, uh, was a fabulous company and Verizon still is, I believe. Still have many people that work there. Uh, I started uh, building a market for them in northern Illinois. I was the youngest general manager in the company at the time. Uh, 26, they somehow handed a $25 million business to me. I still don't know, understand why, but uh, that was a good build and uh, it was more of a build than a turnover, uh, turnaround, but I got some really good, uh, some really good press from within the company from the results that, that, uh, that we did uh, in those markets. It was a seven county market. I spent most of my time in the car visiting retail stores and outside sales teams and, and indirect distribution agents. And it came the time that uh, they came to me and said, we have two places we'd like you to go and, and, and work your magic and, and turn these two places around and you have your choice. I said, oh, wow, great. Well, we didn't really like living in uh, where we were living at the time. So we said, hey, let's go. Cleveland or San Diego? Ah, uh, hmm. <laughs> yeah, a, it was a really, it. really hard choice. <laughs> but, you know, after about three seconds, my wife said, and you didn't tell them Cleveland, right? <laughs> no. Who carry right now? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So the uh, the government major accounts group out of San Diego. It's one of the biggest government areas in the in the country, along with Virginia and, and DC, and uh, you know the big Air Force Navy bases. Uh, was was I believe it was number nine out of nine different markets, and it and it should have been number one. The interesting part uh, of that particular one, number one, all of my direct reports were fifteen to twenty five years older than I was, uh, so I had that going for me. And second of all, we had just acquired that market from an old Bell a legacy market, Pacific Bell. So not only was the new leader coming in to you know, straighten things up and get it moving in the right direction, is 
he's also the guy from the new parent company. Hmm. And I had this one guy that he'd been in wireless literally since, you know, 82 when there were like 10 cell phones. He was one of the originals. And everybody said, watch out. Oh, you're going to have to meet this guy. Oh, oh no. He's one of your, you know, managers and uh, he's going to work for you. And it was one of the first times I really had to say, this is a person I need on my side. How do I get him there? Because he was the opinion leader of the group. That was, you know, they came to him. And this guy, I see, I was uh, 20, 28 or nine. This guy was 59. So oh, yeah. he'd literally been, yeah. been in, in some kind of telecom since I was born. And uh, we ended up developing a, a great relationship. I said, you're, you're, you're my guy. You got to have, can you help me? Can you help me bring this team around? Because we're going to have to make some changes. We're going to have to uh, grow. It's going to be painful. And boy, he just kind of melted, you know, over over a couple of weeks, and said, "Hey, I'm going to help you, and we're going to build this together." And and we ended up being the going from number nine to number one in about uh, a year and a half. And, when, you're, uh, when, you're, when you're building these teams, Mike, because I know that's going to be that's part of the what you had done when you bought your company too, which we'll get into. I'm just I'm just curious, like what do you what are you doing with these people that are that are like how do you find that that twinkle? Because I know a lot of a lot of owners that I work with or people that have been on the show. I mean, it's like you know people people is that's how everything's done. I mean, business is business, but then it's all about people. Like, what are you doing to get to them, to get them excited, to actually get them rolling in the right direction? And then how you how do you prune the people that aren't actually on the team? Well, I think first, uh, since I've come into a, uh, a dozen brand new situations where all eyes are upon you, right? Oh, you're the new guy. You're the new person. You're going to rescue us. You're going to save us. You know, we just laid off half the company and now you're the leader. What's up with you? No matter what, people have a very, very refined bullshit meter. They, I, I, I think, seriously, I, I think 90, 90% of the people can spend 10 minutes with you and see if you are genuinely interested in what they feel. So I think it all starts with, with internally that you are, that, that I know I'm responsible for, let's say, these 50 people in, in, this, in this company or this division, but that I, truly think about not just them, but between those 50 employees, they might have another hundred and, you know, another 75 spouses, significant others, children, that my purpose when I walk in that door is to help them succeed to their next level, the next rung, the next position. And that's, that's the core of, of, I think, great leadership is that you are truly and 100% there as a servant. Uh, to lend your skills and talents uh, to that. Once once a, a team sees that, they will attain the absolute top rung of teamwork uh, and the most successful teams that that I was a part of, a part of and led, uh, was that when you sit around a table with your your top ten leaders, where everybody says individually, I have these skills, I have these passions. I'm good at this and I'm going to take that and I'm going to lay it right in the middle of the table. And all those people lay their talents in the middle of the people in, in the middle of the table. And it's for everybody's use. We're going to drop pretenses. We're going to drop titles. We're going to drop egos and we're all going to work together on this. And this is what I bring. Mm -hmm. I think that's really what starts great teams and, and, and is the foundation of turnarounds. 
Yep. No, I've, I've been part of it and it's, <clears throat> it's, it's fun. And that's what I think a lot of, you know, that kind of experience too. I'm, I'm curious is like how you took that outside of corporate America, but like, cause I also, I, I think a lot of owners that's, you know, end up exiting, they miss that like group magic, you know what I mean? Because it's hard to recreate that kind of stuff. Once you have a team like that, it's very difficult to, to sever those bonds. And it's tough when you, when you end up moving on. And, and, and there's varying degrees of it. I, I can't say that happened every place I was uh, or any team that I was part of. Uh, but when it happens, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a stupid word, but it's magical. Mm-hmm. I, would agree. I mean, I, I literally remember waking up on Sunday, on a Sunday, thinking it was Monday for about five seconds and getting up to go to work and then being bummed out <laughs> because it wasn't. I, 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 never, I never forgot that. I'm like, okay, I'm at a career best here. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, this is what I want to create. And, you know, whether I have it or not, uh, whether I have it, it's, do the people have it? So and, how did you uh, go Mike, from like, you know, <laughs> wanting to work on Sundays from that to deciding that like you had, you had been had it, you'd had enough of the corporate world. Sure. Well, I did, I did three more turnarounds in, in corporate after, uh, you know, government and major accounts in San Diego. After that, they gave me all of Southern California. Uh, for all business, uh, you know, small business, medium, large accounts, I ran that, and then the uh, Verizon merger happened. AT and T bought the market, and uh, they had a different structure, so they paid all the all the VPs off and uh, got a nice chunk of change. Did a startup immediately after that, at the very tail end of the dot com boom, uh, which is gosh, probably four podcasts uh, with all the stories of uh, catered lunches, <laughs> ping pong tournaments. Uh, I think our greatest accomplishment was that we were one of the first companies to have Wi-Fi in our building. Good use of money, right? I, just like let's spend exactly. it all beanbags, Wi-Fi. Let's get like mainframe. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, I then so I had about a five-year middle there. I did a turnaround for a cable company, uh, Southern California, and uh, in between after I left uh, Verizon. And when we moved back to Minnesota, it was back into Verizon, but in their marketing and advertising division. And I ran the upper Midwest for Verizon Information Services, which, hold on to your hats, sold yellow pages. <laughs> I love it. Right? It was right coming out of the heyday of, of the yellow pages as the prime advertising source for all small businesses, which it was, and moving into the digital sphere. So it were it was the first pay-per-click models, it was the first banner ads, it was the first directory service um as the internet took off. Uh, a lot of fun. And it was a turnaround as well. Uh it was a huge division. You'd never think a, a metro area of, of Minneapolis, St. Paul would have forty salespeople selling yellow pages, but we did. Well, I believe it. They were very successful. So back with Verizon for about three years. It started becoming a little more commoditized. It changed into a very, very big company feel, which almost all of the the places I'd been in my career were were big companies, but you know there was a lot of local control. Mm. Uh, the local GM, the local VP had P and L responsibility, which in, in now fifteen twenty years later uh, is unheard of. Right. Nobody has P and L responsibility at, at those levels. Uh, so much more commoditized, and it, it just run its course. And I just decided I didn't want to work for anybody ever again. 
where were you? What, 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 what happened? And back, yeah, like, I don't know if you ever read the book E-Myth, they call it the entrepreneurial seizure. <laughs> yep. It was the entrepreneurial seizure. That's exactly right. Where were you? Exactly right. Well, I started getting cynical and, th- and that's your first clue. Uh, yeah. it, it's how I pick out employees that, that have just run their course. They get cynical. They get cynical about everything about their job and they just start complaining whether, you know, to the boss or to everybody or whatever. It, it, it's cynicism. And I got really cynical and I got so cynical. I sat down Monday morning one time and I said, I'm going to do a time study of my job is, you know, senior director over this, you know, these five states, how much time do I actually get to do my job, which is to grow the business and keep employees and customers happy. And it was under 30%. The rest was conference calls and, you know, report. Yeah. I'm like, you know, this is, this sucks. I'm, I'm done. So I decided to go out on my own. I started my own consulting company and I wanted to do for small and medium sized businesses, what I had been doing my career for large businesses. And, uh, with, with my experience and, um, and contacts, it, it took off relatively uh, easy, relatively quickly. Uh, I had great work, uh, and I really focused on direct sales, which is a big problem in, in small companies, medium sized companies. They've got salespeople. They've, they've evolved into, needing to create demand, but there was no infrastructure in place in a, in a small company where the, the owner or, or, uh, or president may be, a functionally, may be functionally literate in, in the industry, say website design, uh, but they've never managed salespeople. So we started out managing salespeople for small companies and developed the system that we could do that very effectively over the phone, which means instead of managing eight salespeople, which normally a sales manager could do in person, we can manage 25. And I hired a couple uh, contractors, uh, three actually we ended up with that would uh, run these, uh, these programs with companies and, and we did well and it was nice. Because when I came into it, I said, you know, I'm going to do my own thing and my kids are either going to starve or we're going to make it. So <laughs> my kids never got that skinny. Uh, there were some lean months starting off, but it was, uh, I sold my 66 Mustang to, to, uh, the finance part of the startup. So I wasn't too happy about that, but, uh, at the end I bought a 67. So it got back, I got it one year back. back. It, right? <laughs> it so, got back into it. It pulled me back in. What was, you know, as, cause I know, um, we'll be getting to the, some of the juicy part of the story here in a sec. You know, I'm curious, like, you know, as you were doing all these turnarounds and stuff like that, Mike, and building these teams, I mean, how, and how, like when you're doing your consulting, did you miss like having the team and the infrastructure to be able to, make big moves like you used to? I missed having, uh, you know, a $20 billion company behind me, right? (laughs) You you make a mistake. It's like, Hey, you're going to miss your budget by uh, $70,000. Oh, okay. Is that bad? Uh, Just don't do it again. Uh, not now it, you know, I didn't have a lot of overhead. I didn't (laughs) exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I could just sell my Mustang. I, the biggest thing I missed was every time I go, I worked out of my house. We all worked at our house. I'd go up to the coffee machine and there'd be nobody there to talk to. I missed, I totally missed the social aspect of, of being around people. Uh, and, and my own team, you know, I could influence, uh, I could influence my consultants uh, and my clients, obviously, but, you know, there's a different relationship there, which really, uh, when, my, when my consulting company pivoted was when I really started somehow to, to get introduced to these companies that were almost dead. 
and you know, I'm in the sales business, so let's boost sales. And but they had all these other issues that I dealt with before, and it really morphed into, I need to talk to all the bankers. I need to talk to the real uh, to the business brokers. I need to talk to the CPAs because these are where these companies come from, and I want to help them. Let's do a turnaround with a you know a whole small company uh, or a portion of it. You know, uh, I got brought in as a uh, kind of a rent a CEO, a CEO mentor for some younger, uh, some younger owners uh, brought in by their boards to help them become a leader, help them to develop the processes needed to do it. Uh, but about a year and a half in, I had a, a client that was a plumbing company. Now I knew a little bit about plumbing. All my uh, all my jobs in high school and college were in the trades and, and framing and concrete, and electrical and and plumbing. And so I knew a little bit about their business, and uh, they really didn't have the stomach for what I told them they needed to do to turn this company around. It was a 10-year-old company, had really good customers, but it was being mismanaged. They were still using Yellow Pages as their only advertising source. And uh, In the end, they didn't. Uh, they said, well, can you help somebody? Can you find somebody to buy it? I said, well, I'll do you one better than that. I, I like this, uh, this business. Uh, I'll buy it. We'll buy it. We'll turn it around. We'll we'll do whatever what what we need to uh, with it. So then I went I went home and said, uh, "Honey, we're going to buy a plumbing company." And <laughs> like, waited hey, the, for the like the sink's already dripping in our house. How are you going to yeah. fix other people's stuff, <laughs> yeah. dude? You, you wear a suit and tie every day. <laughs> You're going to own a plumbing company. Are you stinking nuts? So don't worry, honey. I'm not touching the stock portfolio. I'm not borrowing against the house. I'm going to use my uh, part of my 401k and this will be, it's, it's really cheap. I got it, you know, at a very, very good price, obviously. And, uh, and we're going to turn it around. There's going to be ups and downs, but uh, I've done this before and, you know, let's, I, I think we'll do well. So Mike, how, so that's how I got into plumbing. Why? Well, and so that's how I got into plumbing. <laughs> so from wireless to plumbing, uh, did you fully yeah. raise the plumber's crack? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, so, exactly. I'm curious, Mike. Like, so if you, you know, for the audience, because I, you know, I've you and I were chatting before we got on the show about you know acquisition, entrepreneurship, and buying instead of building, and you know, I, I think you took an interesting approach here, especially with your gravitation towards more distressed companies, which typically don't get sold. You know, you you can find them all over the business brokers' websites, and there's usually just tons and tons of problems with them, um, or people are burnt out. And so you got a unique experience being able to just, you know, you had some exposure to it. So like, you know, maybe kind of walk us through your thought process of like, okay, you know, what did you understand about what, what was appealing to the, to you about the business for you to want to do this? And then how did you value it if it was distressed and then kind of maybe explain how you use your 401k to actually purchase it? Sure. What, uh, what there, there were really three things that, that uh, I was enamored with this business uh, first of all, it had good bones. And, and when I say the company had good bones, it had, you know, one or two of the, of the three legs of the stool. They had a great customer base that I knew could be guard that, that I knew could be marketed to, uh, they weren't being marketed to. So that, that was really the, the crux of it. How many uh, it had great customers. They have, I mean, they, well, they probably had 15,000 no 15, past oh, customers yeah. in the database. Uh, and, and a really good database. It was a franchise, you know, so there, there were some good systems behind it. Uh, but in terms of, you know, from coming from a corporate background, uh, having a well, well, 
versed business uh, business skill set, um, looking at all the other parts of the business, uh, the two things that other that attracted uh, me to it. Uh, number one was that it was all residential, and they got paid the first day, the day you do the job. So I had no AR, right? <laughs> nice. I, I had a ba- I had a backstop for, uh, you know, I had a, a cash reserve that uh, you know emergencies growth that I could draw on. They didn't want to, uh, but that would that was very appealing to me. No AR. The second thing was in the in a lot of service industries and, and plumbing especially, all the labor is variable. Which means I don't have a other than my overhead in you know dispatch and billing and you know accounting, uh, all my cost of goods sold is completely variable. So if we didn't sell anything, I didn't pay anybody. That was very appealing to me. Was it, was it, that, is it almost kind of like the the trucking industry where you've got ten ninety nine people are kind of their own little mini? Was it all just mini entrepreneurs that you just deployed once you got the job? Uh, some some service companies do run it that way. Garage doors is big like that electrical in some places, plumbing in some places, but in, in the plumbing world, they're usually the good companies. Uh, and, and this was ended up to be one of the larger plumbing companies in the Metro. They're, they're actual employees, but they're on commission. They're oh, actually okay. classified by, by as a commissioned outside salesperson. No, I did not know that. Huh. Yep. So that also brings up the other one, which is there's no overtime. <laughs> you, yeah. you might, you might be charging your customer overtime, you know, for a night, so we never did, but uh, most of the companies do. So you're getting a higher, uh, a higher uh, ticket amount, and the technician is making a percentage of that. So they do make a little bit more, uh, but it's all it's all relative. It's all the same percentage. So your your wage percentage of of revenue uh, stays identical every month. Interesting. So those those were the very those were the very big uh, things that that drew me to it. Uh, in terms of financing. It was, I was a very much a neophyte in that, uh, that way I had a, the, uh, franchise that I was going through said SBA loans, the only way to go. They're the only one that's going to spread goodwill out over 10 years. They don't have very, very many, very many covenants at all. Go do an SBA loan. Okay. I'll go do that. I had, uh, you know, I, uh, put a, a large sum down, which they were very happy with. Uh, I probably could have got a, a regular bank loan. Uh, for the amount that I put down, and so it was a great way to 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 originally buy the company. The fees were outrageous uh, for the SBAs. Yeah, I mean, unbelievably outrageous. Had no idea that that they were until you know until we got all done and I started investigating. But uh, the 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 biggest hurdle and, and and thing that I wish I would have known was uh, the the amount of collateral that you have to put up for an SBA loan. It was so unbelievably prohibitive. I think I was over collateralized by a factor of at least two on the loan. I mean, they had me put my stock portfolio up there, which my wife is not happy about. They had me put my house, which was paid for, up as collateral on the loan. It's a joke. And she was definitely not happy with that. But we technically <laughs> said, honey, have, honey, we have everything, but it's not ours. <laughs> exactly. It could be somebody else's. And I made a commitment to her right there. I said, if if everything goes as planned, a year, two years, we'll be able to go over to conventional, we'll pay it off, and we'll get all of our, our personal assets off of the collateral sheet, um, which actually we did in a year and a half. I was you know, really bummed that I paid all those fees to the SBA, uh, but I found a good small community banker that wanted to understand my business and me and what we were doing. We went from 
you know, under a million to almost 2 million in a year and a half in revenue. Uh, and the previous owners were not profitable. Uh, they were running negative cash flows and negative profit. Uh, barely, they were kind of breaking even. But we quad, you know, we were up into the into the teens very quickly in terms of uh, uh, profit percentage. So. so, for the listeners, Mike, tell everybody why you collateralized everything, took out a loan for a company that was losing money. <laughs> so, like, well, why was why was it even worth anything? And how did you how was it valued? How was it valued? Um, <laughs> that that was actually a piece that I we we had had agreed on a price. I I, I came to that. It was basically a discounted cash flow model, my discounted cash flow model. And we had agreed on a price. And then we went to the SBA and found out, much to my uh, chagrin, that the SBA will come value your company for you. And by the way, if you want our money, you will sell it to that buyer at that price and nothing more. Mm-hmm. No side deals, no consulting deals, mm-hmm. no, nothing under the table, you know, anything like that. And the SBA came back with a price of a, almost $100,000 less than I'd already negotiated with the seller. So how'd you guys fix uh, the discrepancy? He had, he had to eat it okay. and he did. Okay. So I got it for you know less money. So they valued it. And then the SBA values uh, has their own methods for valuation. It, it ended up to be an asset sale with uh, a little bit of goodwill at the end for, uh, for the name and the brand and, and the customers. So you know, compared to what I, I sold it for five years, five years later, it was, you know, in the eight to 10 X range. Uh, well, but we got a really good, we got a really good price. I can't. Well, and, it, I, and so I wanted to, I want to dive into what you did to, to do that and how that all, how the, your exit worked too. But, you know, one last thing is, as you were looking at the business, you know, what was the deal with the franchise? Because I mean, I interviewed uh, the, the co-founder, well, not of not zero res, but the local one here where he scaled it from zero to like 18 million. It was a franchise, right? And there's every yep. franchise got different stipulations as far as like, because I mean, the value of a franchise, I mean, they, they have, it's like, you know, big brother looking over you telling you what you can and can't do. So did you have any, like, what was the, what was their view on, on exits and transitions? They have uh, every big franchise group has has a whole group that buys and sells their franchises for the franchisees. Uh, I checked this particular one out, the Dwyer Group, uh, out of uh, Waco, Texas, and they own now they own over twenty different brands of uh, of all service companies. They they were very important. I was I was told that there are some franchises out there that will you know absolutely just. Steal your business with royalties, mm-hmm. excessive, excessive oversight. Uh, I didn't want those either of those, obviously. And as I checked uh, this particular one out, uh, and and before I actually went down there and met everybody uh, during the the uh, the sale process, found that the uh, the royalties were very reasonable. You know, obviously, I wouldn't want to pay for the royalties if I didn't have to, but you do. <laughs> right. uh, not some people try to find them. No, they're not negotiable, believe me. Uh, the good thing about it is it's a sliding scale. The bigger you are, the less you pay as a percentage. Got it. And the, you know, the, the, the systems that a franchise brings to somebody who's you know, even coming from corporate America, or let's say you were, you know, uh, they do transitions all the time from private business to franchise. So you own an HVAC company. What you're missing probably is uh, the systems, the good dispatch systems, the good financial packages, the training, the support from a you know licensed franchise franchise consultant. Uh, 
uh, and they'll move their businesses, all their revenue, all their customers over into this model. Uh, it works a, a lot all the time. And um, did, did they have any stipulations? Cause I got a client that's a GM dealer and uh, GM pretty much has complete authority to say who is the, is the successor. Did they have any issues? Like, like, did you, have they to- have to, they have to approve it. Okay. So they had to approve me when I bought in, uh, when I sold it, they had, that was a stipulation of the sale in the, uh, uh, in the agreement. It's all depending on whether you, you will qualify. And the Dwyer group is one of the higher end, uh, franchises, uh, franchise groups out there. Uh, I highly recommend them. So Mike, they, they take the f- that, they take that very seriously. So, yeah, sorry. Um, so what was the first day? So everything closes and then, you know, you and I had talked, so you had actually had a plan, like because you were an acquirer and you and you collateralized everything. You had you had to have a plan. So what was sure. what did your plan look like? What were your goals? Timing? What, I mean, like what and what was the first thing you did? So how did you how did you map it all out? And what was the what was the main target? Sure, first first nine months was was true survival. Uh, for the first for the first thirty days, I went home after a very long day and told my, and asked my wife, why the hell did I do this? Because the, the old owners, God bless them, uh, you know, left me with a, a big pile of crap, uh, skeletons just and... a big pile of crap. Seriously. After a week, I only had five employees. How many did you start with? Uh, I think I inherited maybe 11 and we were quickly very, very much down to, to five. We ended five years later at 26, but so survival mode for nine months, which is, how do I just get the phone to ring? Uh, which background in digital marketing, we went real heavy into that uh, to get the phone ringing. And then as the years went through, we refined that and tested and, and ended up doing a, a, a really good job in terms of ROI uh, lead per customer and, and those kind of things. But my first, my first objective was to get financially sound enough show some growth over three or four quarters so that a, I could get out of uh, the collateral and, uh, and get the attention of some local uh, business banks. And right around that time uh, it actually ramped up so quickly. I, I, I was amazed it ramped those bones there. Once we started talking to customers and saying, Hey, come back, give us a try, give us a try. Here's some specials. It, it really took off. Uh, we took advantage of two things in the market, which in, in, for service companies, I don't see a lot of people doing this out here. We saw an opportunity in nights and weekends. Now, if you're a tradesperson or you're a service person, you're a, a dispatcher, a call center worker, that's not the time. You don't want to work second shift or third shift or weekend shift. But we came up with, we came up with that basic idea for this particular market. Nobody's serving this. And then we came up with, we're not going to charge you any differently on Saturday night at 11 p.m. than I do on Wednesday at 2 p.m. So same price, nights and weekends, anytime, same price, just call us. And it started working. And we went from one on-call person during the weeknights to a full staff of people whose regular schedules were 2 to 10, Wednesday through Sunday, for example. So we started covering that, and near the end, uh, before we sold uh, revenues in that time, those time frames were almost forty percent of our whole revenues. Wow! Very well, it's big. like the, duh. The, you know, and I, they, I love it when I hear th- stories like that, and you're just like, duh, because like I had this other guy on my podcast. I went into the dentistry, and he's like, yeah, like 
we did nights and on call. And I'm like, well, yeah, because everybody's working. So like who has time right. to like, meet their plumber from 10 to six at their house? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so that those, those two, that what, I, what I really wanted to do though, uh, was to get big enough to where I could afford a general manager. I wanted to hire somebody to come in here and at least for six, eight months, run the business next to me, find somebody I could trust to actually run it. Uh, because I still have my consulting company. I still have my clients. I was still trying to service them at different points. I would basically throw all my clients over to my other uh, employees and contractors to service. Uh, and sometimes I had to step completely out of it. But the uh, I, I, I got to that point. It hurt a little bit. I had to you know, pay myself a little bit less for a couple months, uh, but I got somebody to, uh, to run that and, uh, and take over, uh, at the, about the year and a half mark. Uh, that was also the time when I got all my personal collateral off of the company and it started organically producing enough cash, uh, to do the things we wanted to do. Uh, we bought three of our neighbors, some very small transactions, uh, neighbor franchisees, we did that all organically. Um, we did, I think, one seller loan uh, for one territory, one business. Uh, but the rest of them, we just cash flowed. We just stroked a check, saved up, and and, so, and did it. Just a clarifying question, Mike. So, did you was this, was a general manager for your consulting company or for the the plumbing company? For the plumbing company. Okay. For the plumbing company. And so you hired that uh, person around a year and a half in. About a year and a half in, I, I transitioned him out of. Uh, we had opened a commercial sales division, doing plumbing and. Uh, and drains work for restaurants and, and, uh, commercial buildings. And he was the salesperson for that. And he was a good guy. And, and we, so I slowly moved him into that role and managing all the, uh, de- department managers now. And, and I stepped back a little bit and for about two years, I stepped back to maybe a day and a half, two days, three days a week, depending on the week. So, so well, I would just, when you were doing this, Mike, because I, th- I think one of the one of the problems that a lot of entrepreneurs have is that when you're doing stuff like what you just described, you know, you're, I don't know what his price ticket was for his salary, but I mean, it, you know, at the at the revenues and stuff that you're at, it's directly out of the entrepreneur's pocket. So then they end up getting like totally like stonewalled at like the two million dollar mark because it's like, do I sacrifice, you know, personal expenses or pay, or pay for that person? So. Yep. You know, how did you, you know, I, th- I think, you know, because you had an ultimate target, I'm curious as you, you kind of reiterate, like, what was your, what were you driving for from a timeline? Maybe there wasn't a timeline, but how did that help you make these kind of decisions? Because I think that's a big dynamic that people are so focused on cash flow and making the, the, the money each yep. year that they don't think that this is going to essentially like eliminate the constraints to growth and to a higher valuation. I mean, how did you reconcile those kind of things according to your plan? Well, I knew, I knew 3 million, uh, about 3 million was, was about as high as I, I wanted to go or could go mainly because you're adding an entirely another layer of, of oversight and management uh, at that. And you're into another three year growth cycle. And I had set five years. Uh, really, I have no idea where I come up with five years, but I, I said, we're going to do this for five years. Uh, we're going to get a much higher uh, valuation if, I've, if it's the absentee owner. I've got a good GM running the business, and it's going to be expensive. Now, luckily, that fit into, into my strategy that I, that I caught on to very early on, uh, and it all has to do with Uncle Sam. I would rather drive a really nice work truck on the company's uh, balance sheet 
then give that money to the government. Mm-hmm. So we're all, we're all into uh, you know optimizing our tax bill. But I would so my my theory and and I think it worked in practice and it definitely did with the GM. I would rather have an easier life as an owner and pour that money into our employees and development, pay top wages so that we don't have turnover, uh, have a GM so that I'm not you know working seven days a week or even five days a week, and show less to the bottom line, you know, over and above the fact that that will produce a more profitable company. And it did. In years four and five, we really took off under that model. We were able to grow and add a nights and weekends manager, an office manager. Um, I was able to take a bigger uh, a bigger stake with a CPA uh, that could do more of the finance work that I was doing. And it, and it worked out really well. Uh, ab- above all, in, in year two, um, I came up with a document. It was my just-in-case document. And it was basically the brochure on buying my company. Now, I don't think I would have got, you know, much more than I paid for it in, you know, year one. But when I finally saw, hey, you know, if somebody came to me with this number, how would I justify it? Or if they said, hey, I want to buy your business, what would it be? How would I justify that? So I came, I I created a sale document uh, in year two. And Every year in year three, I, I I would update it with the last year's financials, performance, uh, acquisitions, all those things. In year three, I started it doing it twice a year, and in year four, I did it every quarter. Hmm. Now it also had some had some other benefits. My banks loved me. They said we we don't have any customers doing quarterly complete operational uh, overview, financial overview. Mm-hmm. You know, can we give you some money? <laughs> That was basically what it came down to. And by the way, we're yeah. not going to take your stock portfolio or your house. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Hey, uh, I, I got a big customer. I'm going to need uh, you know a couple hundred thousand dollars on my credit line uh, to hold this big customer. I'm going to get for for three months. Oh, oh, can we give you four hundred? <laughs> well, no, I just need two, and I don't think I'll use it, but I just want to have it there. Okay, okay, it'll be good. So the banks loved it, and uh, and ultimately when we hit five years. And decided this is, I think we're at the top. It's worth the most it's going to be in the next, right now, uh, unless we take the next step. And now, then we're into three years from now. And so that was a year and a half ago or two years ago. And we started to uh, look for buyers. Um, we before used a. I was going to say before go we go down that, that journey, Mike, I just I got a couple other questions on it. So, you know, because you and I both know as we've been talking over the last year, like, and, I, and that, that this is what I preach and this is what I do for our clients and what I, the whole point of the podcast, like, where did you get the insight to have the five year, th- the, the, the five year plan? And then how, you know, was it the, you know, the experience that you had from buying it where you were like tracking the valuation and how are you like, you know, so as you're looking at their financials and updating like semi-annual, then quarterly, like, what were you doing to say, okay, like, here's the valuation that I'm looking at. Here's kind of like the deal structure. I mean, were you looking at net proceeds and how, like how, where did you gather that information? Because, you know, when you were doing that, there wasn't a whole lot of help to do that. So you actually gathered that by yourself through other things, but like, you know, and what, what were the KPIs you're constantly looking at? Definitely, uh, definitely net income, EBITDA and everything above. Margins in that particular business were relatively stable. I didn't really improve margins very much. I really increased revenue and I really put um, cut on expenses, mainly 
from turnover. We had one of the lowest turnovers in our whole franchise group out of 350 franchisees. Uh, and it was because we put the money into the people and didn't mm-hmm. really you know, try to shortchange, uh, shortchange people. But I think the structure of you know, the planning element really came out of my, of my years in corporate America. I mean, you don't uh, go to the bathroom without a plan, mm-hmm. right? 75 page document on what the hell you're going to do next year. And then you go sit in a room with, you know, six people that are above you and they pick it apart piece by piece by piece by piece. So that attention to planning uh, was really ingrained in me uh, from all my years in, at, in corporate. Uh, but the, the, the metrics that uh, it, I, I wish I had a great, you know, story and insight and aha moment that it, uh, that it was, but in, in the franchise world, they know what the franchisees, or I'm sorry, the franchise knows what their franchisees are worth. Got they it. sell 20 or 30 of them every year. That's so yeah, yeah. you're, if you get to this point, you're a five multiple. If you got a GM, you're a five and a half. If you have none of that, it's an asset sale. If you're under a million dollars, it's, you know, X, Y, it's, it's almost a rote. Isn't that awesome though? Like, I mean, that's what's so, and that, well, that's what we're trying to create, right? I mean, that's like what we want every, it's a, it's an actual game plan versus just, you know, sitting on the hamster wheel, just trying, just going like crazy. I mean, so would oh, they exactly. publish this stuff or did you just chat with the people or? Oh, no, no. And I did, uh, I did seminars at uh, quarterly and annual meetings on, on business plans, uh, on having this kind of document. Uh, but the, the process for preparing franchisees in inside any franchise system uh, is, is a pretty well-defined process. They they know who should exit. They they encourage certain people to exit, um, and they help them with that. You know, were they encouraging you to exit? They couldn't have because you were like a poster child. No, they liked that I was you know producing three point whatever percent uh, times the revenue the previous guy was, which is three point seven you know times their uh, their royalties. Uh, but but they knew that you know th- there are more and more people like me getting into franchising, and uh, in these businesses, you know people coming out of that twenty year stint with uh, you know big fat four hundred one ks are not doing anything with and won't do anything with for you know fifteen years. Mm-hmm. So corporate refugees, man. <laughs> you bet. You bet. So, Mike, what like when you like what was the triggering event that you said okay I've got this doc now is the time like what 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 led you to that. I hit the uh, I hit the five year mark, and I said, you know, I, I really think this is worth the most it's going to be worth for the next three years. And I don't want to do three another three years. I want to go do something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to retire. I, I actually did. <laughs> we we closed. I had a nice barrel of money in my pocket. Uh, I sold all my uh, consulting clients to my uh, to my employees. I closed down that, and I remodeled bathrooms in my house for four months. <laughs> So I want to, I want to circle back to that. Cause I know you got, a, you got some funny anecdotes on that, but before, what was just, you know, quickly, what was the, what was the process to selling? I mean, then did, did you like, how did you vet out the buyers? Was there a broker involved? Like, how did you like figure out how much money you were going to make? I mean, like, what was the team just kind of shed some color on that whole process? Sure. In the franchising world, like I said, they have a process for that. Uh, they kind of have a small, medium and large in most uh, franchising, uh, the small way is we're going to put, uh, they're going to, the franchise puts out an email and says, Hey, these are the ones we have open. They put it on their website. That's wow. basically zero cost, right? And, and very little, uh, very little results. The large is they'll hook you up with a traditional business broker who will market and, and sell your business and take 10% at the end. 
Uh, I chose the middle option, which was basically a subscription fee to a group of people whose job it is, whose companies buy and sell franchises. So they already have these relationships with high net worth individuals, people coming out of corporate family, uh, family offices that are ready to do that. So instead of 10%, I paid, you know, $15,000 or something Mm -hmm. upon sale. Um, once, uh, the buyers are vetted then by the franchise, which was really nice. So oh, I didn't really? have to meet with a bunch of, didn't have to meet with a, with a bunch oh, of yahoos. Nice. I met, uh, I met four different people did not uh, all the first three, uh, would need a seller note. And so I was very picky with that, uh, ended up, uh, the person that ultimately bought the business was more, a lot more self-financed and. Uh, and a really, really good guy, similar background to mine, uh, coming out of corporate America and wanted to buy a business that he could, you know, have and run and support his family with. And, uh, it worked out, worked out very well with that. So on both sides, was it an asset or a stock sale? It was an asset sale. Did you guys have any choice in that or was it? Not really. Uh, it, it really just, because of the size. made itself it made itself into it there's a lot of goodwill and service companies there's there's assets obviously but yep well so you know did when you were doing that did you i'm just curious as you're going down that process because of how much you planned i mean i, I find it very rare that uh, that an owner knows exactly how much they're going to put in the bank it's kind of like a you know wish and hope and throw the dart and whatever i well if you know if i if if all my money was in macaw and um you know there was no uncle sam at the other end going to take a big 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 slice out of it i knew exactly what i was going to net because i had relatively little debt Mm -hmm. and i didn't pay much for the company in the first place Mm -hmm. Uh, so really the big conversation was with my cpa uh, who's, who was an excellent, excellent guide. And I said, give me three scenarios, right? Because we're still negotiating. Mm-hmm. Asset, stock. Should we close in 17 on December 31st or should we close on January? Which we could negotiate. You know, tax laws, new new president. Trump had just been elected. We had no idea what was going to happen. Um, <laughs> yeah, no <one> so, <laughs> so he gave me these three scenarios and, uh, you know, with, with, less down, more down. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the really only, only big thing you have at the end of, of that asset sale, especially in a service company is, is, is the allocation of assets mm-hmm. to the sale. That was, that is, that was a big negotiation and he gave me some ranges on that. And in the end, what he gave to me is these three scenarios. We ended up going with somewhere around the middle scenario. And in the end, that check that I got that day, was within five thousand dollars of his estimate. That is super cool. That's awesome. You don't hear yeah. that too often. <laughs> if if you don't have knowledgeable advisors for that uh, that piece for all the pieces, you're 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 leaving money on the table. So so when you get this check and the wire happened, like what you know, go back to your your retirement because you you've said it multiple times in meetings I've been with you. Like what. What was it like? What went through your head? And what was the retirement like? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it was really nice seeing. I took a picture of the check. I took a picture <laughs> of my bank account and, uh, you know, then, then started paying off the, uh, the remainder of the business debt and, and all that stuff you do at closing. But, um, you know, in the end, I, I, I kind of knew in the back of my head I wouldn't stay <clears throat> retired because I'm, I'm relatively young at, at 51 to be doing that. I think in the end, I just wanted to say I could retire and know that I could. 
and, and you know, it's not life changing money, but at the other, at the same time, I wanted to just clear my head. You know, it got rid of both of my companies. Let's take some time off. Let's do something else, <clears throat> not involving you know my brain. So I just remodeled a couple bathrooms in my house, which was a lot of fun, and uh, got really bored. It was kind of like when you you call you you you're sick or you you play hooky in, in in high school. There's nothing to do anything with because everybody else is in school. So, oh, that's a great analogy. I remember what, like after we sold my my dad lived on a lake. And he just wanted to like, he, he would be like on his pontoon on a Tuesday morning by himself. And he's like, where is everybody? I wanted someone to play with. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I, as you know, I hooked up with Jason, who was one of my early consulting clients seven, eight years ago at Gratis Capital. And I've found a, a nice home with them working on their operating companies and doing what I have done my whole career, which is helping people advance and building systems and processes that, uh, that end up uh, putting a lot more to the bottom line. And uh, it's been a great ride ever since. So you've made the comment that, you know, you didn't have a life after plan. I mean, is there anything you would have done differently plan, you know, cause you're Mr. Planner, like what is yeah. you would have done differently before selling that would have incorporated a life after business plan? Well, first of all, I think that we, you, uh, <clears throat> unless you're, you know, a traditional retiree at 65 or 67 or 68, um, where you're just tired and you're ready to not work as a, as an entrepreneur or, or somebody who's been you know, fortunate enough to, to do that, uh, early, we come from planning backgrounds, which means we need to plan that retirement. We need to plan that time as, as diligently as we planned our, our next quarterly, you know, operations report or the next, uh, you know, what have you. And I didn't, I just wanted to be done and I was done. So that was my first mistake. And, and next time I do it, I will be doing some, some planning. So, you know, what planning does it just mean the absence of work? And it doesn't for me, a couple of the books I had, uh, had read around that time after I sold the company was really focused on finding your purpose in retirement. Uh, not a lot of content out there for younger people who don't want to work or not going to work. But uh, next time I retire, I will, I will have that purpose. Uh, I've done some teaching in the past at universities and uh, that might've been something, uh, but you know, you never really, you never really quit working. You just uh, quit caring about how much money they're paying you. Well, and it's funny cause I've, I've said it on the show before where you, if you can answer two questions, which is what are the most interesting problems I want to solve? And then who do I want to solve those with? And if you can, solve both of those, you kind of got it. <laughs> You've kind of got it made. If you, if the money thing is not a, not a, not a problem. Exactly. And then you wrote a book though, didn't you? So like in there, there's a book that you wrote. So you, I don't know if you want to explain to the listeners what that's about and then what's the, the best way to get in touch with you. So you can get a hold of me at, uh, my email address is Mike at Wickham.com. That's my last name, W I C K A M. Uh, or you can go on Amazon, uh, search my last name, Wickham, and my book is entitled The Unforced Rhythms of Grace and Gratitude, and it's in the spiritual and motivational section, and if you're one of the, uh, you could be the 773rd person to buy my book. So, <laughs> Hey, I'll tell you what, that's 732 <laughs> people that have not bought my unwritten book, so I'll tell you what I'm going <laughs> to credit for it because I'm in the process and it is not easy. 
So if there, you know, Mike, just a, if there's one thing that you have for, I think an owner that's looking at this stuff, one, maybe, you know, we covered a lot of ground. You, I mean, you got a great story that I think a lot of people can relate to in different various fashions, but is there one thing that you want to leave an owner with that is kind of looking up for the first time going, okay, what, what am I, what should I be doing? Well, boy, I'd go back to planning. If, if you, if you do not have a plan, you are certainly going to get there. Yep. Yep. I agree. Pick, pick a date. I, I don't care what the date is. If it's, if it's 10 years from now, if that transfer of generational wealth or responsibility to your now 10 year old, uh, put that date on the calendar, take one step this quarter towards that. And then next quarter, take one more step and then take one more step and accelerate it as you get to that point. Uh, where you want to make that transaction or or attempt the transaction. Well, I think what, what, I, what I love about your story, Mike, is that so many times, there's actually a running joke out there that everybody, every owner's got a five-year rolling exit plan because they just, when they get closer, they just push it back <laughs> out. But you actually did it. <laughs> like you actually held to it and then pulled the ripcord, man. It's a, it's a cool story. It's been a lot of fun having you on the show, Mike. I appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much, Ryan. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Mike. I think the big takeaway is that he had a plan and knowing where you're trying to go and why is the most important thing in business because you can have all of the fun in the world and be growing and growing and growing. But if you have no idea what you're marching towards and why, it's very difficult to reverse back into all the strategic plans. So the the interesting dynamic that he had is that he had a franchise partner that was giving him constant valuation. So he had a lens that he was marching towards. What I know a lot of private companies, we don't have that. So really understanding what is your financial target, your margin towards, your timeline and your exit is so important. So if you don't have a resource, reach out to us because that's the whole point of the five principles is to create a new paradigm shift and a new lens going from two-dimensional to three-dimensional so you can be focusing on the valuation, the exit, and the timeline that you want. Worst case scenario is you get there and you say, I'm having so much fun. I want to hire a GM or whatever, and then continue running your business as a passive investor, knowing that you've got time. I just really, really think that understanding the intentions will derive every single decision that you make. So if you want to take it to the next level, reach out to us. We're going to be putting on a boot camp actually starting in October that'll actually have three days jam-packed full of the growth and exit planning principles. And I would really hope that you start thinking about it. Otherwise, give me a rating on iTunes and I will see you next week.